Who cares if you're happy? Have you ever thought about that? Who cares if you're happy? You walk through Walmart, you go through the mall, you drive on the road, you pass thousands of people. Who cares if you are happy? What if we got you into a room like this with all of your favorite friends and had food and drink and celebration and fun? Even then, who would you say really cares if you're happy? You may feel that at home. You may feel that at work. Now, I'm sure there are people that do care, (laughs) but they don't care all the time. They're not thinking about that all of the time. But in this text that we're going to look at in Matthew chapter 5, we talk about happiness, the pursuit of happiness. That's the question. What is it deep down that you really want? What is it that you really want? Now, there are always two answers. (laughs) There's a good answer, and then there's a right answer. (laughs) We all have a good answer of what drives us, but if I were to ask you, what is it when you get up in the morning that you really want? I can tell you, you want to be happy. You want to be happy. You want to be content. You want your day to go well. You want to be blessed. Now, there are some of us that would probably, and I'd probably put myself in this category, say, well, I don't really want to be happy. That doesn't sound too spiritual, does it? It sounds really self-centered. I had one person tell me, God doesn't care so much if you're happy. He cares if you're holy. Now, I thought about that for a very long time. I think God does care that I'm holy. I think God does care that I'm happy. And to me, the more I thought about this, you can't really have one without the other. Think about that. That's for another message. (laughs) The problem is how we pursue it, where we find it. If God created you and loved you and desires relationship with you, His plan and His design is that you be content and full of joy and be happy. That's His plan. The problem is how we pursue that. So let's, let's take a look at this text. It's, to me, it's a, it's a tremendous passage of Scripture found in Matthew chapter 5, and I'm going to read the first three verses. The first two are what we'll look at this morning. One day, as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples gathered around him, and he began to teach them. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him. Jesus arrives on the scene And he says, blessed are you. In fact, you'll find this eight times and then a ninth time, but there are eight statements that he makes. And the way that you translate this word is happy. We can say blessed or privileged, or we could say um, 
that that you have been fortunate but blessed makarios is the greek word in case you would question that means literally translated happy 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 are you blessed fortunate and jesus is speaking to a large group of people an audience of searching people. I'd say, why is it an audience of searching people? Because every audience is an audience of searching people. Wanting to be happy. Wanting to be content. Wanting to be fulfilled. Wanting to wake up and have their day be a blessed day. This sermon in particular that he preaches is Probably the most famous sermon in all of history. It is called the Sermon on the Mount. And it covers chapters 5, 6, and 7. We're just going to look at the first two verses this morning. And it is probably the most familiar sermon. If you read through it, there are all kinds of statements where you say, I've heard that before, I've heard that before, I've heard that before. And you have heard them from politicians, you have heard them from religious leaders of all faiths. In fact, even Gandhi and, and others like that of, of various faiths in the world will say, I live by the Sermon on the Mount. Probably the most familiar is the golden rule. Do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. You've probably heard that before in some fashion. It's in the Sermon on the Mount. But this sermon is probably the most misinterpreted misunderstood and misused of all sermons. So our focus this morning will be on this. I've said an introduction to the Sermon on the Mount or an introduction to the pursuit of happiness. I do not believe it is wrong for me to pursue something God intended for me. I do not believe it is wrong to pursue happiness, joy. Now, if I pursue it in the wrong place, that's a problem. If I pursue it in the wrong way, that's a problem. But if you feel a little bit dirty, a little bit wrong, a little bit out of sync, if you say, I really want to pursue happiness, it is it's finding out from God and His Word how that really works. And when you follow His way, you find it. That's what He says. That's why I think this this passage of Scripture is so relevant to where we're living today. Because we, we live in a world full of people chasing things that are not satisfying. What was the attraction to Jesus? You ever thought about that? What, what was it that drew these crowds? Because it seemed as though he was trying to get, a lot of times, get away from them. <laughs> find a quiet spot. But they'd always seemed to find him. He, he had many of his messages around the Sea of Galilee. His disciples, a number of them were fishermen. And so they, they lived on the sea. They, they fished for a living. And so there are towns and villages all in that region, and he would go across in a boat or walk around, and the crowds would always come. But I think there are five reasons, real quickly, that made people want to listen to him. Number one was his life. 
his life. People watched him live, and it was like, no one has lived like this. Well, that was because he's God. <laughs> he was perfect. He was holy. He was right. He was true. He was loving. He was kind. He could have a thousand people around and give you his undivided attention. It wasn't his person, his character. There was a calming effect. Jesus never seemed hurried or rushed or in a panic or late. It was his person. That was a, people were attracted to Jesus. They also recognized that he had been approved by God. An interesting thing that had taken place in Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, when he was being baptized by John the Baptist. And he said, I'm doing this to fulfill righteousness. And it says that after his baptism, Jesus came up out of the water. The heavens were open. And you can imagine all the people watching this. The heavens are opened up and they saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him and a voice from heaven. Now look at your attention. <laughs> Said, this is my dearly loved Son who brings me great joy. Wow. <laughs> Can you imagine being there watching Jesus, this man who's perfect? Why would he need to be baptized? Heavens open up and said, this is my beloved son who brings me great joy. That's the, another reason. Third reason is his miracles. I mean, everywhere that Jesus went, blind people started seeing, lame people were walking, lepers were healed. He turned water to wine. He raised the dead. He calmed the storms of the sea. <laughs> I mean, People were healed, lives were changed, demons were cast out. They knew there was something amazing about him, power. And then, fourth, his teaching. The best teachers in the land were the Pharisees. But he said they didn't teach, he didn't teach like them. He taught as one who had authority. Because his words made sense. They got to where people were living. They loved to hear his teaching. And then finally, I think they gave the people hope for a Messiah. All the things were lining up because they talked about Messiah coming, Messiah the Deliverer. Now, what they were expecting was not the way he was working, but they were hoping for a Messiah to free Israel from the Roman domination. This particular sermon is probably repeated in various ways in other places, but this is one that, that we draw our attention to now. What was his audience? And I, and I think of the audience, first of all, he had his, his 12, his disciples. These are the ones he had called, and Jesus was a rabbi. So a rabbi chose his students. Students didn't choose the rabbi. The rabbi chose the students. So he had 12. And, and they didn't sit in the class. They just did life together. They talked about everything. Everywhere Jesus went, they went. And we see that throughout the New Testament. In the accounts of the Gospels, we find that these 12 were just, every, Jesus went here, they went there. They just, and they did life all together. So they learned. This is how they learned. And this rabbi would teach them. And so most of the, most of the teaching that Jesus does through in the New Testament that we read about is to his 12, his followers. But there are always those around, the crowd. And so Jesus tries, then try, I mean, he does, he makes 
sense for everyone, not at the same level. And I think the same way on Sunday when we come here, primarily what we do is we meet for believers, followers of Jesus to be encouraged and helped and to grow up. That's our main task. Secondarily, to be people that come that don't believe in God, don't believe in Jesus. They're seekers. They, they're people that are interested. That's not our primary focus of Sunday morning. But when they watch and see what we're doing, many people will want to learn more and be able to grow. And that's, that's how that happens. So you have this group. Now, there were, there were also uh, segments of society. And this is, this is really interesting how this works. And you can probably draw some parallels to our present-day culture. But there, there were interest groups <laughs> watching Jesus and evaluating him, standing in, in, on the side and watching him. So you had, you had the disciples here. You had the crowd of just normal, everyday people. And then you had these four groups that were skeptics. First was the Pharisees. Now, we use that word in a disparaging way, typically, but the Pharisees were the ones the most respected for their religion. And they were all about tradition. <laughs> tradition. They would say, let's get back to the old ways. None of this new stuff. We don't want to do these new things. We want to go back to the old ways. The Pharisees were all about control. How do you handle the people? You control them. We have Ten Commandments. We need more. So they came up with 663 commandments. And you know what? They're probably tomorrow going to make some more rules for you. <laughs> now, they were the righteous ones. They were the ones that that were following Jesus around and saying, you can't do that, you can't do that, because he's breaking all their little rules that they made. And so they were very self-righteous people. Then you had the Sadducees. The Sadducees was the, was the other part of the religious ruling body of that day who, who were not the conservatives and the traditionalists. They were the progressives. We need change. We need progression. We need to do new things. We need evidence in fact, they wouldn't really believe a lot in uh, miracles or the resurrection. So there really was no hope. That's why we call them, they're sad, you see. <laughs> Sorry, that was, I couldn't resist that one. <clears throat> so different than the Pharisees, but they're the ones that they're all about change. You know what? Let's try something different. Let's do it. Hey, here's the latest, greatest. This is the new thing. Let's the way we can do it when we meet together. Then you had the zealots. I love this group. <laughs> Because they're all about social change, about politics. And I could get in here and get myself into trouble, but <laughs> you know, they, I think, what has Christianity become in America? About you know what we're going to just be—it's all about politics. We're going to change this. We're going to change this. We're going to go to law here, and they're just watching the news constantly, and it's polarizing. The zealots were all about trying to run the Romans out to make social change. They were not spiritually minded. It was all about culture, about behavior, about control. The zealots wanted to pick up a sword and go fight everyone. And then you had the Essenes. The Essenes, you're probably less likely to have heard of them, but they were the hippies of the day. <laughs> they were the ones that kind of, we got away from everything else, and we're, uh, it's self-imposed asceticism, 
and we're going to deny ourselves of all these things, of these food and this, uh, all the pleasures of life, and we're going to pull away from society and isolate ourselves from everyone else. And that way we can stay holy. Been around some people like that too? You can draw a lot of parallels. <laughs> I won't go there too much, but life is not changed. But these are the people that are listening to Jesus. The location is around the Sea of Galilee. See, when it says he went up onto a mountain and sat down, it's not like a rocky mountain. <clears throat> it's like a sloping, grassy hill going up from the Sea of Galilee on the, the southeast side. And probably then hundreds and, and could be more than hundreds of people gathered around to listen to him speak. Now, it's interesting that in the Old Testament, if you go back to Moses, he was on Mount Sinai getting the law from God. Pretty intimidating. Now we have another mountain in the New Testament that Jesus is saying, I'm the fulfillment of the law. Jesus is, is really, it's not different. People say, well, that's the Old Testament, this is the New Testament. That's all the same. Jesus is making sense. On, on the mountainside here, he is making sense of what Moses was saying. He is tying this together. He is bringing this home to these people. He said, don't misunderstand why I have come. He said, I, in verse 17 of chapter 5, he says, I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> I'm here. Now, this part was my favorite part of my study, this next point. It says he sat down to teach. Now, this looks like liberalism if I were to be preaching like this on Sunday. But the other thing is that everybody out there was standing. Jesus sat, the crowd stood. And I thought, that is great. And I thought, if I sat down and preached every Sunday, I could go on and on and on and on. I, I could all afternoon. And if you had to stand while I was speaking, you couldn't fall asleep. Now, no one's going to go for that. <laughs> so we won't do that. Maybe a little ir irrelevant to my point, but I thought it was interesting. So what was this message that Jesus had, the message? And it is a message of the kingdom. He is announcing the kingdom. Fifty-six times in Matthew, we read about the kingdom. John the Baptist had said, repent and believe the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus came and he said, repent of your sins and turn to God. The kingdom of heaven is near. Matthew chapter 4, 23, he travels to the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. What is the kingdom of heaven? Mark and Luke call it the kingdom of God. I believe they're the same. The kingdom. What is the kingdom? Well, the kingdom, first of all, is the realm, the realm of God's domain, which is everything. The kingdom is his authority, his realm. The kingdom has a king, and the king is Jesus. This is what we're going to see. He is the sovereign. 
Now, he wants to rule and reign. This is really important to see. First, the first place he wants to rule and reign is here. Right now, the Romans are ruling this world. We call this the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of this world. Many times the scriptures will talk about kingdom of darkness, kingdom of this world. That means this earthly, temporal, fleeting, dying existence. And the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus, which is eternal and enduring. It's his reign. He is the king. He has come and he is rejected. In fact, if you were to take the theme of Matthew, it is the king rejected. So he has come to rule and reign in their hearts. He has come to be their king. You'd think that that a life like this, teaching like this, miracles like this, approval from heaven by God like this, that who wouldn't love this guy? They crucified him. They crucified him. And then we have the return of the king in the true sense. His realm, we have the king as he reigns, the rejection of the king, and then we have the return of the king because he inaugurates his kingdom. He offers it in a sense. We, we use the term already but not yet. He comes, he announces, believe upon me. And they reject him. They crucify him. But the scriptures teach us that he will come again and there will be a physical, real life rule and reign on this earth. And there will be an eternal, from there, an eternal reign where he vanquishes all foes and all evil and all sin and we live in a new creation. This is kind of the the storyline of the Bible that we've talked about. We go from creation, which is perfect, fall into sin, Redemption, which is Jesus, and then restoration. Restoration is is when he makes everything new in his kingdom. It's beautiful. So it is here. Jesus is here. And yet the spiritual realities have not been manifested in the physical sense of the future hope. So that's the message. The message of the kingdom offered. What is the meaning of this? He says in Matthew 5, 17, don't misunderstand why I've come. It's really important. Don't misunderstand why I've come. And they all did. They all did. Even after this, they misunderstood why he came. You have heard your ancestors say, but I say to you, this is repeated several times in this sermon, You have heard it said, but I say. You have heard it said, but I say. And what he is bringing is clarity to the meaning of that Old Testament saying. Now, when Jesus, do you remember what Jesus said when he was walking along the Sea of Galilee and he sees Peter and John and he sees James, he sees Andrew? What does he say? He says two words to them. Follow me. That sounds like pretty easy, you know, like, Sure. It's the hardest sayings in Scripture. Think about it. He didn't say, believe on me. He didn't say, go to church on Sunday. He didn't say, live a good life. He said, follow me, which means leaving everything. This is repentance, leaving everything and turning and following him with your whole life. 
It is the hardest thing to follow Jesus. But it is the most beautiful thing to follow Jesus. Because His way, though difficult on this earth, brings real joy, real happiness that lasts and endures in perfection for eternity. Oswald Chambers said, Have you ever heard the Master say a hard word? (laughs) If you've not, I question whether or not you've heard Him say anything. (laughs) Jesus Christ says a great deal that we listen to, but do not hear. When we do hear, His words are amazingly hard. There are four conclusions that I'd like to just make with this introduction. And, and we look at context of the Beatitudes, which is the first ten verses of be happy, be joyful, this is how you're happy, and then the rest of the sermon. But this, this is context. First conclusion, number one, you can't live the life without the life. You can't live the life without the life. You see, many people look at the Sermon on the Mount as a list of ethics to live by. That's how most of the world looks at the Sermon on the Mount. Everybody believes in the Sermon on the Mount. This is a list of ethics that if you live by these, you'll be happy. Here's the problem. You can't live by these. It's like the Ten Commandments. You won't live by these. The only way that you can live the life is to have life. The only way you can move and do things if you have a heartbeat. How does that happen? Jesus said this to to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Because Nicodemus came to him at night and he said, how can you do the things that you're doing? How can you do these things? And Jesus said to Nicodemus, one of the religious leaders, a Pharisee, he says, you must be born again. You must be born again. In other words, you need new life. You have been born physically. That's obvious. You need to be born spiritually. And the new birth is not working yourself up. It is life coming down. It is Jesus' life in you. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus as your Savior, He gives you life. He gives you eternal life. So you can't, you can't grow if you don't have life. You can't live if you don't have life. And I believe our churches are filled today of people who are living by ethics and rules and standards and trying to live a good life who've never been born again. Jesus said you must be born again. This is troubling to a lot of people. You can't work it up. It's only by God's grace that we have and receive eternal life and we're born from above. Secondly, not only do we need to be have life from Him, transformation happens from the inside out. See, the Pharisees and religious leaders were, were really working on the outside. In other words, if you if you Work on the outside, it'll help the inside. If you just do the right things, it'll start changing your heart. That's the way we are. If you look right, act right, you'll be right. Total opposite. This is why <laughs> this teaching is hard for people because it's flipping everything. 
Everything that Jesus teaches is a paradox. It is a contradiction to the way people naturally think. I don't start doing all the right things. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to live a good life, do these things, follow these rules. I don't do this. I do do this. And all of a sudden now I become a better person. It happens. Transformation happens from the inside out. It goes to the very root of your life and will produce fruit. Root to fruit. Root is transformed. Life is given. It produces real fruit. So in other words, these marks that we read through the first 10 verses of chapter 5 are the evidence of a person who really does have life. (laughs) This is is how they normally live. Not things you go do to get life. It's because you have life, this is the way you begin to live. Not perfectly, because we're not in heaven yet. But you think about this. You've seen plastic fruit. Your kids have probably bit into it. You won't admit that if you did. <laughs> you look at that in the window at the restaurants. You know, they show, man, how does that pie not get old during the day? Well, because it's not real. <laughs> or they bring out, <clears throat> you know, the dessert tray. It's fake. It's plastic. But God knows what real fruit is. Real fruit can only be produced by life of real root that is deeply changed. Third, repentance is a way of life. Now, repentance makes us recoil, doesn't it? A little bit. Repent, repent, repent. But what, what repentance means is, is, is a turning, a change. It's a change of mind that results in a change of life. That's what repentance is. A change of mind that results in a change of life. So if I am pursuing happiness, I want to be happy, I want to be happy, I want to be happy, and I'm pursuing it in the kingdom of darkness, I'll never find it. I need to repent, repent of that pursuit and turn to find the pursuit of finding happiness in Jesus. His kingdom, He reigns. In other words, my life, my heart submits to Him. He is my King. I live for His kingdom. And I find peace and joy through that. The whole of the Christian life, Martin Luther said, should be repentance. I'm constantly turning away from the things of this world that will not satisfy. And I turn to Jesus who gives everything that satisfies. He is the source of all joy. He is the source of all pleasure. And then fourth and finally, He is Lord of all or not Lord at all. He is Lord of all or not Lord at all. He can't be Lord of your church life or your religious life. He can't be just Lord of some things. He needs to be Lord of all. And Jesus did not come. This is is the great problem of our modern culture of church and Christianity. Is it the Sunday thing we go do? No. When Jesus says, follow me, he doesn't say, just believe on me. You know, he says the devils believe and they tremble. He doesn't say just, oh, get saved, invite him into your heart. He says, follow me. The call is to be a disciple, a mathetes, a follower of Jesus, which means an abandonment of all things that you would pursue in this worldly fading kingdom and to pursue him alone. It's a discipleship. 
not just getting someone to pray a prayer and nod their head and say, I want to go to heaven. Everybody wants to go to heaven. But to follow Jesus, He is not just Savior, He is Savior, He is Lord, He is King of your life in all things. Now, most of us don't want to do that, don't want to surrender that because we think, all the things I'm going to miss out on. You know what? Well, it's like the angel's probably sitting up there saying, go, okay, go ahead, knock yourself out. Because you can chase that stuff all you want. And you will never be happy. You will never be happy. But in Jesus, you have everything. <laughs> in fact, this is what, what Paul said to Timothy. He said, he's given us all things richly to enjoy. So it's not just that you have things, you have him. I love this text, Psalm 37.4. This is a good one to type out and put it on your refrigerator. It says, take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desire, your heart's desires. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you your heart's desires. Now, now if you really think about that, okay, if, if I delight in Jesus and all my delight is in him, and he says, I'm going to give you your heart's desires, what is my heart's desire? It's Him. <laughs> I thought, I used to think, well, if I delight myself in the Lord, He's going to give me all this other stuff over here. No, it's not the other case. It's, I have Him. And with Him comes everything He gives. David said, he, in the Psalm 145 actually says, He opens His hand and satisfies the desire of every living thing. So when you have Jesus, you have everything. But you must repent and turn to Him. So what is it that you want? We'll come back to that question. What, I can tell you what you want. You want to be happy. You come to Jesus. That's the only way. You want to be happy? You come to Jesus. There is no other way. He alone will make you happy. But you must come to Him as Lord and King and Sovereign of your life. He is King, but He needs to become your King. You must repent from your other empty pursuits for happiness and trust Him, believe Him, and follow Him. And be happy. Father, these are hard words because they conflict so much with what we see and hear in this world and what we feel in our own flesh. But help us to realize that these hard sayings in the Sermon on the Mount are for our good and I pray that we would come to embrace them and trust You that no one is good like God is good. No one loves us like Jesus has loved us. No one has given to us like Jesus has given to us or will give. And so, Lord, I pray that every one of us would turn to you alone and be happy. In Jesus' name we pray.